My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. And today we're starting this new series called Anxious, Anxious for Nothing. And you can find the resources um, that, are, that go with this. You want to explore it some more, pursuegod.org forward slash anxious to find all of the related things that, that will help you talk about this in your family, in your small group, etc. We're talking about anxiety for the next few weeks. And, um, you know, it's how God word, God's word has this way of intersecting with the real things in life, right? It's, who hasn't been anxious at times? Some of us are anxious right now. Somebody asked me before this first service if I was anxious about this message. So we'll find out, right? So, I mean, you look at the news, I've seen reported a number of times in the last few months how anxiety, by all the surveys and the statistics, is higher in American life than ever before, especially among children and young adults. How much of that was a pandemic, I don't know. How much of it is other factors, it's hard to parse that necessarily, but the CDC reports that something like 10% of kids aged 3 through 17 have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. That's 6 million kids. And I, I saw an article just this week that one in six millennials, that's the generation that's age 25, 26 and, and older, um, one in six millennials suffers from chronic anxiety. And that article talked about issues like, like financial security moving into the future with the changing economy and so forth. It talked about th- you know, things that affect the future, like the threat of climate change and things like that. My, my daughter is in that age range. <clears throat> and, and last year, we had a, just this, this, a few months ago, we had a, a pretty heavy conversation because she's concerned. She saw an article that the New York Times had published about the the Great Salt Lake and what's happening to the Great Salt Lake as the water goes down and down and down. And so she's had this concern about, she lives not far from the Great Salt Lake, and she's had this concern, reported that if things continue the way they are, then there's heavy metals in the soil, in the lake bottom. If these become exposed and dried out and the wind kicks them up, then we're all going to die, you know. So, So those are the kind of anxieties that she has as a millennial. But you know, it's not just young people, right? I remember I went through a particularly uh, difficult time of anxiety in my 50s where my wife and I were both facing the prospect that within, that we're going to become unemployed at the same time. And think, you know, the work where we were working was shutting down and different things. And, and so we were both going to be out of work. Um, at once, and we'd never faced anything like that before. And, and to, on top of that, it was around the same time that, that she was diagnosed with cancer that eventually took her life. And so I don't have to convince you that anxiety is real, whether it's health or what, whatever it is in, in, in your experience, <clears throat> anxiety is a real thing. We all struggle with it. We all wrestle with it from time to time in different ways. But let's take a look and let's get a definition of this for, this is the working definition we're using in this series. Anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. <clears throat> you ready to that? For students, maybe students worry about friendships. They worry about 
whether they're liked and approved of. They worry about major life choices that lie ahead. Young adults worry about relationships and, and marriage and kids and finances and future career. And older adults worry about their health and, and do, do we have enough money for retirement? And what about our grown-up adult, uh, our adult children, the choices they're making and our grandkids? And there's plenty to worry about. And so in this series, we're going to talk about anxiety. <clears throat> And in our first topic today, we're going to talk about overcoming anxiety. We're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. If you want to find that in your Bible, your Bible app, we will have that on the screen as well. But we're going to talk about overcoming anxiety. Now here's, I want to, I want to set before you a concept about how anxiety works. We call it, we're calling it the anxiety cycle. And it begins... <clears throat> when something triggers an anxious thought, right? So for my daughter, what triggered her anxiety about the lakes? You saw an article in the New York Times. And then, you know, so, so we start thinking about it. We start obsessing about it sometimes. We start worrying about whatever that issue is, that thought, that, that situation that arises that we didn't expect, maybe we didn't see it coming, whatever it might be that triggers anxiety, and then often then what we do is that we try to avoid that, we try to stuff it, we try to ignore it, we try to like pretend it and try to go on and, and, and just kind of put it in the background and not think about it, and that works for a minute, right? Because then it gives us some temporary relief until, well, guess what? The anxious issue never got solved, it just got ignored, and so... Um, when we avoid it, oftentimes it only gets worse and leads to more anxiety, leads to uh, that cycle of anxiety being triggered all over again, right? And so by contrast to that, the Bible offers peace. For those who are followers of Jesus, the Bible gives us this promise, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So this reveals the secret for overcoming anxiety, the biblical prescription for anxiety. It happens when we learn to replace those old anxiety-producing habits, habits of thought, emotional response, habits of handling things. We replace them with new peace-producing habits in our lives, in our minds. And so we're calling this the peace cycle. Four simple steps and we're going to look at each of those four steps from Philippians chapter 4 this morning one by one. Before we go any further, let's just stop and pray about it. We've identified the issue. We felt it a little bit. We've seen the promise. Let's pray about how God will apply that to our lives. Father, thank you so much that you care. You care about us. Father, you have invested in us. You, you care about what we care about. And you've given us this promise. So today we ask you to help us to understand it, to grasp it, to internalize the things that you're saying to us, and to believe them, to believe and trust in your wisdom and your work in our lives. You know the things that, that we wrestle with right now. You know the things that are on the back of our mind right now, churning. Over and over, we keep going back to that worrisome place. 
And Father, it's so many different things. It could be anything in so many different lives. We trust you with that today and ask you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. So here's the four parts of this peace cycle. Number one is to overthrow worry. And what I mean by that, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, but I want you to get the sense of like, I want you to think about the times that you've worried and how overwhelming that can be, right? And sometimes it just feels like it's, you're under its control, like it's just got you, it's got your heart um, in its grip, and so you can't think of anything else, and your mind keeps going back to that place, and it keeps going down that circle, that, down the drain, like circling over and over and over again, and, it, and you become so obsessed with this one thing that you can't seem to shake and to think about all the time. Well, the Bible teaches that emotions, our emotions are subject to our choices, and particularly our choices about how we think, mental choices. And so we can redirect our emotions as we learn to redirect our thoughts. And that's what we see in, really, that's what Philippians 4 is about, where Paul says, don't worry about anything. Well, that's a choice that we make. It's a command, so that means there's a choice associated with it. That's the starting point. The starting point of overcoming worry is that decision that you and I make to reject worry, to reject the anxiety cycle. Now, it's not going to stop in a moment just because you said, I reject worry, right? It's, emotions aren't, don't, you can't just bring them to heel so often so easily as that. And thought patterns that we've developed over years of our lives, we're not just going to be able to snap our fingers and say no to those things. But it's still the necessary first step in the process to say, I'm not going to stuff it, I'm not going to avoid it or hide from it or pretend it's not there, but I'm going to actually take authority over it and say no to it and reject its control over my mind and over my heart and choose not to get stuck in that cycle again. So the place where we say no, instead of embracing it by habit, we say no to worry. <clears throat> And so look what he doesn't say. By the way, you know, as I think about that, in my own experience, I've had to make that decision to say no, to worry, to say, I've had to make that over and over and over again sometimes for the same issue, over and over again in the same 10-minute span of life, you know. So it doesn't just like happen in a, like flipping a switch. But it's still the starting point. So he, said, he doesn't say don't worry about most stuff. He doesn't say, don't worry about anything unless it's really, really important. And, let, and he says, don't worry about small stuff. He doesn't say that. The idea that he's trying to communicate here, I think, is that nothing is worthy of our worry. Now, we like to think of exceptions to that. And I'm, and I'm sure that some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, if you only knew what I was facing right now, you'd realize how worry really is the appropriate response. Well, no, no, it's not. It doesn't mean we don't care doesn't mean that it's not important, but I want you to think of that, about the situation that Paul was in when he wrote this to them. The whole book of Philippians was written when Paul was in prison, and he'd been imprisoned for no fault. He hadn't done any crime. He got caught up in the middle of a political thing, and, and so his only way out was to appeal to the court system. And so he's carted off to Rome, and he's in prison in Rome. He doesn't know how long he's going to be there. In fact, the verdict is still hanging over his head. He doesn't know whether he's going to be 
found guilty and executed or whether he'll be released or when that might happen. Either one of those might happen. So if you think about it, who wouldn't worry in a situation like that? But he says he's sitting there in jail writing, don't worry about anything. You know, I think what helps us to understand why he can say that is to understand the context in which he's writing, right? Because, you know, a secular psychologist might say many of the same things that I'm going to say today or or some of the same directions that that we're going to go today. But for Paul and for us, this decision to reject worry is not just wishful thinking. It's not just the power of positive thinking or or the power of, of your mind. It's not just a technique, but this decision occurs in the context of a living relationship with God. See, ultimately, it's only really possible to overcome worry when God is in the picture. It's as we learn to trust Him and look at our situation through the lens of God's work and God's reality in our lives. And so that's how... Paul's approach is going to be different from even the best things that secular psychology will teach us. Now, when I say, I don't want you to misunderstand this, when I say to overthrow worry or you make a decision to reject worry, I'm not saying at all that what you face is unimportant or that the things that you're that are causing worry in your life, that they're trivial. They're not. They may be very important. They may be very serious issues in your life. And so we're not just saying like Hakuna Matata, right? It's not just like my wife and I just saw The Lion King in Salt Lake City last week, so that's on my mind. You know, I could start singing the song. But that attitude of like, eh, it doesn't matter. That's the attitude, right? Oh, it doesn't matter. Just forget it. Don't, don't let anything affect you. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying that, you know, we should, there's things we should care about. There's things we do care about, and that's appropriate to care. And so to say don't worry is not just saying, eh, who cares? That's why I don't like the saying, um, remember this saying, it was popular a couple years ago. You said, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. No, it's not. It's not all small stuff. Being in prison, wondering if you're going to live or die, that's not small stuff. When when your adult child is addicted to something that's controlling their life, that's not small stuff. When your loved one is dying of cancer, when uh, the future of our planet might might be at stake, that's not small stuff. So, So we're not saying, look, it doesn't matter. We're not saying, look, it's not important. We're saying, yeah, there's things that we do care about and we should care about in life, but that's not the same thing as worrying about it. The Bible says don't worry. So our first step in the process is that choice that we make mentally to reject worry. Now, how do we live that out? Well, that's where we keep going around the circle to the next step where instead of worrying about it, we replace it with prayer. So Paul says that. He says, he says uh, instead, pray about everything. Because you know what our hearts are prone to do, what comes naturally to us, is to turn every thought about the tough issues that we face to turn it into worry, to turn it into like anxiety, and it starts to gnaw at you and get in your heart, and it's like, and it's like starts to, to raise your blood pressure, and it starts to give you indigestion. It has this, psycho, this, this somatic effect in your body. And, but what God tells us to do 
just turns that whole natural approach upside down, we're going to see those thoughts are going to come. We can't control our emotions. Those emotions will come. Those thoughts will come. But what do we do with them? We can do something different with them than what might come naturally. And so Paul says, instead, pray about everything. Instead of our worries triggering the anxiety cycle, then they can trigger prayer. When you feel anxious, start to pray. I know for me, when I start to feel anxious, my first impulse is to start to solve it. I think, what can I do to solve it? Well, Paul says start to pray. Because, you know, there's a lot of situations I can't solve, most of them in life. There might be something I need to do that God tells me that to do, but, but I can't solve it on my own. When I think about climate crisis, start to pray. When you think about uh, your course load and you're stressed with the classes that you're in, you're like maybe bit off more than you could chew, then, then you start to pray. If you're worried about this election that's coming up in a few days, start to pray. Now that takes a conscious decision because it isn't easy or natural just to redirect our thoughts, but it's certainly a decision that we can make. And those prayers are powerful to fight anxiety in our hearts. Now prayer is more than just, you know, like folding your hands or folding your arms and bowing your head. It's, it's not just limited to some kind of formal language like thee and thou. You know, I spent some time with my son um, the last couple of weeks. We were working on his house. He lives up in Oregon. And never once did he address me with thee or thou. We had a lot of great conversations, a lot of heart conversations, but, but never once did he say thee or thou. And same thing with prayer. Prayer is just a conversation with your, your, your Father in heaven, your God, your Father. You can have that conversation anywhere, at any time. You can have that conversation when you're driving in your car, when you're lying on your bed, when you're on your treadmill doing your miles. You can pray before a big meeting. You can pray after a difficult conversation. You can pray for 30 seconds or 30 minutes. It doesn't have to be formal or fancy. It's just an honest heart response to God in the midst of your need. So often I found myself in the, over the years just praying, God, I need your peace. God, I need your peace. The ancient people of Israel understood this. They were facing, <clears throat> in 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 20, they were facing this enemy army that was about to attack their capital city. In fact, it was three armies. They got together to try to defeat um, the people of Judah. And so these three armies are marching down on the city and King Jehoshaphat throws up this desperate, anxiety-triggered prayer in 2 Corinthians 20. He says, our, Oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that's about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. So this three-times army is marching down on their home. What would you feel like? What would you feel? What emotions would you experience in that situation? Well, in response, look at this simple, honest prayer. He says, God, I am powerless. I don't know what to do. I'm looking to you for help. What a great example that is for us. And then a couple of verses later, we, we see some really important perspective on this, where this prophet says, Jehaziel, 
says, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. There's a profound thought there. He says, that battle doesn't belong to you. That's God's battle. And worry, when you think about worry, that's really our attempt to do something about the problem when we don't have any power over it. So we're gotta, we feel like we have to push our emotional energy into something. So we push this emotional energy into worry as if worry could somehow affect the outcome of the situation that we're in. No, the only effect worry's going to have is it's going to take years off your life and it's going to get you knotted up inside and, and it's going to make you uh, just crazy. Worry's a way of making the battle ours instead of God's. See, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to worry about it. But that, that, that's why we can be hopeful. We can be hopeful not because we're strong, not because the situation is minor or trivial, not because all my worry can make anything happen. We're hopeful because God is at work. The battle is His. Now, this doesn't mean complete passivity on our part. There might be a step that God is, wants you to take, or there might be an action or a decision that you need to make in response to that situation. Maybe you're worried. Maybe some of it you brought upon yourself, and there's a simple thing you can do. Like, like, for example, maybe there's a conversation that you need to have with somebody, and a lot of your worry is rooted in the fact that you haven't had that conversation. So you're worrying about it. Or maybe the worry is going to help you to say, oh, there's identifying something in my life that maybe I could, maybe I could change, something that I do have some power over. But even if there's a decision that we need to make or something that I might need to do that God tells me to do, that doesn't mean the battle's not mine. The battle still belongs to God. And so here's what we have so far. Reject worry. It's a decision that starts the whole process and replace it with prayer, which is a whole series of decisions that we live out day by day all through life, replacing it with prayer. And then in the second half of this verse, Paul then goes on to talk about two specific ways to pray, two specific kinds of prayer that are relevant to anxious situations. So here's the third part of the process, third part of the cycle. He says, verbalize your needs. What, it, what, he, what he means there is to get really specific with God about your situation, to get specific about what you actually need in that situation. How many times is, like we experience this worry that's really vague? It's like it, it, we can't really pin it to a certain situation, but just this sense of like, I'm anxious in general. But when we start to get specific about it with God, it starts to help it focus it down to something that we can actually talk to God about, that he can actually do something about. And so in, in verse 6, he says, tell God what you need. And you know, one of the effects of this, why this is powerful, is that when we actually tell God specifically what it is that we need, that's a great way to calmly and objectively evaluate your anxiety. And when you put it on the table to God with that level of specificity, you let God hear about it and you, and you verbalize it, then, then sometimes you realize it's maybe not as hopeless or as scary as it seems when we've left it vague. And that helps. Now, when you do this, I want to encourage you, you can be 
completely honest with God. We learn this in the Christian life. We learn that because of the grace of God for us through Jesus Christ, that we can be completely honest with Him. He's not going to be mad. He's not going to be disappointed because He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to rely on Him. God's not going to be surprised that you can't handle it on your own. He already knows that. And in fact, he, he knows what you need more than you know what you need. And sometimes just verbalizing it, God can speak to us in that process. He can help us hone it down and see it in a new perspective, to see it in his way. So putting it into words. That could be written. It could be oral. Some people like to verbalize it. It helps to, to make a, a list of prayer items, to keep it on a list. And then you pray over the list and you see how God, over time, deals with that. Some people like to express it in a journal. Because a journal is like writing a letter to God about what's troubling you and why. You can, so you can kind of, it helps me focus my thoughts about that issue and focus what I'm really experiencing. Some find it really helpful. I do, in, in fact, to pray out loud about stuff like that, to really to hear myself say it. Because if I just leave it in my mind and I'm praying internally just in my thoughts, it's so easy for my thoughts to get hijacked by the anxiety and I end up, you know, my prayer ends up not helping, but just kind of taking me back down that same pathway as before. But however you do it, there's something powerful about putting your feelings and your needs into words. And so that's the first way that, that Paul encourages us to, to pray, is to tell God what you need. Now the second one is a little less obvious, I think, a little less intuitive. But when you pray about this, he says... You know, thank God for the winds. Now, we oftentimes we think of gratitude in prayer. It comes naturally to us when things are going great, right? Or it's more easy to express gratitude when we get these obvious blessings in our lives. A child is born or we get a raise or, or whatever it might be. We go, yes, our heart is going to go, thank you, God. Thank you for that. But the Bible says, you know what? God's not only worthy of being thanked when things are good. But even when things are hard, and thanking God during the anxious times has this powerful way of reshaping our whole thinking. It's one way that reshape our thinking about the situation. You're going to look at the situation differently because you've, had, because you've injected this thankfulness in. And, and more importantly, you're going to look at God differently and look at the situation in light of who God is differently when you approach him with gratitude in that situation. Now, of course, it's going against the flow. Because what comes naturally in a tough situation is complaining or, or doubting or, or questioning God. But in the peace cycle, this is a really important component. This is where, really, it, it's so countercultural to think this way. And so, again, back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he just says, thank him for all he's done. Now, I said, I called it, thank God for the winds. But I want to explain what I mean there, because I'm not just thinking about thanking God for things that I think are good or things that I like. Because, you know, what I've learned in life is that in any situation, God's at work, that means there's winds that I can't see yet. That means there's going to be things that are, that are really winds, but I don't recognize them as winds because I haven't got God's perspective on the situation yet. So even in the scariest trials and adversity of life, there's, there are things to be thankful for. Paul says, thank him for all he's done. Now, wrestle with this. In, uh, in times when, you know, 
things are not good. I've wrestled with this. Can, can we really thank God for cancer? Can we really thank God for a child suffering abuse, for a young person who's addicted, life-controlling substances? Can we really thank God for that other party winning the election next week? You know? Can we really thank God for 10 years of drought? Well, I want you to notice here in verse 6, it doesn't say you have to thank God for everything gone wrong. We don't need to thank God for cancer. We don't need to thank God for evil things that happen, but it says thank him for what he has done. The implication is that that God is at work in every situation. God is still at work even in the difficult, the adverse situations. And we can thank God for what he might do through that cancer, through that adversity, through that evil. Thank God that he can work in any situation to bring redemption and grace and transformation even through evil and hardship and pain. You know, if I didn't believe that, then I would have to say that cancer is greater than God. That addiction is greater than God. That sorrow is greater than God. That's not true. So when my first wife was facing cancer, I didn't thank God for what that did to her. I didn't thank, thank God for the colostomy and, and her having to deal with that every day. I didn't thank God for how he, she shriveled away to 90 pounds and I can't even look at the picture, honestly, of uh, before she passed, because it, it, it's, so, it's so difficult to see her in that condition. I didn't thank God for all that. But I could thank God for the impact that my wife's faith had on many other people during that time. It was a great impact. She, she just loved Jesus through it all. And I can thank God for how it brought she and I so much closer in the adversity at that time, that's a win. And I can't thank God for how my daughter, see my wife had had cancer seven years before and my daughter was a teenager then and she, she couldn't cope with it emotionally so she pushed her mom away. But this time, she was there. She was close, she was present, they were connected. So I could thank God for that. That's a win. I thank God for all the kindness and generosity that people showed to us. In so many ways. I can thank God for how her employer went the extra mile to meet her needs. It wasn't in the contract, but they were so good to her to accommodate the situation, the challenge that she was up against. And so I learned that, you know, God is at work in every situation. And what helps me then to overcome anxiety is to believe that and to recognize that and actually to explicitly verbalize gratitude for everything that I can see that God is doing in that situation. And one of the most powerful principles for overcoming anxiety, and this is kind of why I think that the Apostle Paul put this forth in that list, is because of its transformational power, is that when we consciously refocus our anxious thoughts from that difficult situation to refocus them onto God and His goodness and his blessings, and no, we're not minimizing the reality of the situation, but we're putting it into a completely different perspective when we choose to thank God for all that he's done. So here's the peace cycle. This peace cycle that replaces this anxiety cycle. 
Overthrow worry. It's a choice that we make. I'm not going to let worry rule. Choice we keep coming back to over and over again. But then secondly, we replace the worry with prayer. Choosing to say, you know, my first response to that situation is not going to be despair. It's not going to be self-sufficiency. It's going to be prayer. And then the third, to verbalize our needs, to talk to God about it, get specific with him about it. And fourth, to thank God for what he's doing. Now, that's the secret to overcoming anxiety. How do I know that? Because God promises it in verse 7. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. There's the promise. You will experience God's peace. Maybe not in the first instant that you reject worry. Maybe not the first time you pray about it, although you may. But realize there are these mental and emotional habits that we've been developing in our lives for years. And and those things are not going to be retrained in our thinking overnight. But they will be retrained as we start to refocus our thoughts and choose new responses. As we keep coming back to these habits, then we'll have a different experience. And what a great promise this is. I mean, think of it. This is a peace, a peace from God. This is a peace that doesn't come from, from secular psychology with all the things it can do to help us. This peace comes from God. This isn't a peace that comes from just uh, removing the situation. This is a peace that, that we can experience even when the situation is as hard as ever. This is a peace that comes from God that exceeds anything you can wrap your head around. And I remember after my first wife passed away, and I was grieving, and I couldn't sleep, and, and life, I couldn't function, but I'd wake up in the morning with this incredible sense of peace. And it was completely contrary to what you'd expect the reality to be in the circumstances I was in. It didn't come from me. It only came from God. It's a peace that surpasses understanding, that was far beyond anything I could wrap my mind around. This is the kind of peace it promises that will guard your heart, will guard your mind as you follow Christ. Now I want to make sure that, that, that this becomes real to you. So I'm going to give you one practical suggestion. More than a suggestion, I'm going to challenge you with one simple thing today as we close. Because you know how life is, it's easy, we could hear about it today and go home and tomorrow something comes up that starts to gnaw at us, that starts to cultivate and encourage that worrisome response. So how do we get this into our lives? Not just hear it once and forget. Here's how. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to memorize these two verses in Philippians 4. To memorize verse four and six, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. To commit them to memory. Because that's the best way, I think, to internalize the principles of the peace cycle is to get these words, get this concept into your heart, into your mind. You know, it's not that hard to memorize. It's about eight phrases. Six or eight, you could break it down into some simple phrases. And all of us have memorized a lot of things in life. You know, you've memorized movie lines, sports statistics, phone numbers, addresses, dates on the calendar. There's a lot of things. We have this power that God gave us. And you know what? That's why I'm challenging you and urging you to memorize these two verses so that you will always have at your fingertips 
these transformational principles. When worry comes and you start to feel it churning in your heart, boom, there it comes. Don't worry about anything. But tell God about everything. It's right there for you. So I, I want to encourage you as a family, around the dinner table or wherever your family get, how your family gets together, you can break it down one phrase at a time over several nights, even over weeks. And just, just once you learn, don't worry about anything. Okay, you got four words, one phrase, then you go on, and I'm going to learn the next thing. Instead, pray about everything. You can just keep building it until you all learn it together. Do it as a small group. If you're going to a small group, if you're not, we really encourage you to do that. But if you're a small group, especially if you're doing this anxiety series together, five weeks together in your small group, by the end of that time, it's easy to have this memorized. And so I think before we finish the series, I'm just challenging every one of you in family or in your group or just individually or with a prayer partner or somebody you hang out with, however you do it, to commit these two verses to memory. And I promise you won't regret that you did. Now, I'm not back in Logan until December, so I don't know how to check up on you, okay? But I think uh, some of your, you can check up on each other, encourage each other. How you doing? Just start quoting it together. Some of you already have it memorized in a different translation, maybe. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, right, etc. However you want to do it, I encourage This is the simplest, most practical way that I can give you to take it home and to build it into your hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your care and concern for us. That all the things that we face in life, you're aware of them. You're mindful of our, of our daily lives. You're mindful, God, of our stressors and our anxieties. And, and Father, thank you that, that you desire to be there in the middle of those things. And we want to invite you into that place. We invite you, Father, to be there with us in the struggle, in the adversity, that thing that right now has my heart and mind so churned up, I can't think of anything else, that thing that, that I just am powerless over, and I just need what you can do. Father, we invite you into that place today. And as now we've learned some biblical truth that you gave us to remedy our worry, to help us learn a different response, to help us gain a different perspective, Father. We pray for your power and your leading, your prompting in us by your Holy Spirit to learn these principles and put them into practice. Starting today, starting today, we're saying no to worry and no to the anxiety cycle. Starting today, right, even, even the last few minutes, Father, we, we've started praying about those things. They're telling you about them. And now we want to find all the ways that we can give you thanks and asking you to change our hearts that we can live in your perfect peace, the peace that no one can really understand because it comes from you. We commit it to you, Jesus, in your, in your name, for your honor and glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.